Christendom College is proud to present the 2008 Dr. Carroll Lecture Series. Today, Dr. Carroll will be speaking on Danton and his conversion in the French Revolution. Shimon, glad to be back. I would like to dedicate this lecture to the memory of Michael Joseph Pennefather, born in December 1991, died early this month. He was supposed to die at birth, but God gave him 12 years. Michael Joseph was born with a crippling disease, scoliosis, with which he lived all his short life. He died in preparation for the operation, which would have begun to correct it. His mother was Deirdre Bryan Pennefather, a graduate of this college. She and her husband, Dick Pennefather, saved Michael Joseph's life many times. God gave Deirdre a heavy cross to bear as a mother. <clears throat> I hope that any of you girls here this afternoon, if you are given such a cross, will bear it as well as she did. As for Michael Joseph, he carried the heaviest cross of all for he was never able to run and play like other children. But wherever he went, he had to have oxygen with him because his lungs never worked properly. But he never complained, but rather was filled with joy. I have never known a happier person. In his short life, Michael Joseph Pennefather impressed and inspired many people, including our pastor, Father Bob Selinski of All Saints Parish who celebrated an unforgettable funeral mass for him this month. Shortly before his death, Michael Joseph drew a crucifix. As my mentor, Dr. Frederick Wilhelmson, metaphysician of the University of Dallas, the late Dr. Wilhelmson, used to say at the conclusion of some of his magnificent lectures, Ave Crux Spes Unica, which means hail to the cross, our only hope. Michael Joseph Pennefather could have said that too, as could George Jacques Danton, maker of the French Revolution, whose conversion and salvation is my subject this afternoon. <clears throat> it was three quarters of an hour past midnight, August 10th, 1792, when the bells of Paris began to ring. They were church bells whose primary purpose was to call the faithful to worship. Now the churches were empty and dark, and only the bells sounded. At first some of them tolled slowly, but others quickened the pace, ringing and rising, ringing and rising, until it was almost continuous ear-splitting, ding, 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 ding! And this was the tocsin, the city alarm, the call to arms, which was a capital offense to sound without orders from the government. Yet in Paris that night there were three governments, that of the king, that of the assembly and the mayor, and that of the insurrectionary commune, which was invisible because it had been created secretly that very evening. It was the insurrectionary commune that had sounded the toxin. All through the night before, it had begun to ring. Rumbling rumor had swept Paris. The time has come. The time is now. The time is tonight. Here goes, men said, not really knowing why they said it, but saying it over and over again. Saira, here goes. Saira, here goes. This pungent phrase, probably the most historically famous idiom in the French language, is like most idiom, idioms impossible to translate accurately. Its literal meaning is here it shall go, 
quite close to the English idiom, here it goes, or here goes, which conveys some, though not all, of the sense of purpose, confidence, and determination of the French idiom. In an unpretentious street-level apartment at 24 Rue des Cordeliers, Street of the Franciscan Friars, three women were weeping, frightened by the sound of the toxin. As they wept, they heard a familiar heavy tread, and an extraordinary figure emerged from a room where he'd been trying to sleep. He was a brawny mountain of a man with a booming voice and an overpowering presence. His huge, grotesquely flattened face looked as though it had been kicked and gored by a bull. It had, by two different bulls, and had also been trampled by a herd of pigs. He tried with a kind of rough tenderness to comfort them. His wife, Gabrielle, whom he loved genuinely and profoundly. Lucille de Molin, one of the most beautiful women in Paris, and Louise Robert. Nothing to worry about, he told them. He'd planned everything that was happening. They were in no danger, for he was their protector, and he was Jean-Jacques Danton, leader and maker of the French Revolution. From his throne of glory in heaven, Jesus Christ also watched, knowing that this man was about to lose the devil on his city and on his people. But Christ was to reclaim this sinner and evildoer, and he did. It's the greatest of all conversion stories. We'll trace its starlit course this afternoon. At one o'clock in the morning of August 10th, a gun boomed from the new bridge across the Seine River, and the ringing of the toxin continued. Hundreds of armed men gathered in the Place de Grève, which sloped down to the bank of the River Seine from the city hall. Standing out among them was the solid block of 516 men who had marched all the way from Marseille, France's second city, uh, to the uh, on the south coast, singing and fighting the marching song, the Marseillaise, which they made famous and which was to become the French national anthem. Though there were reports of up to 2,000 more armed men gathering in the Saint Antoine quarter where the Bastille had stood, long known as the focus of revolution, the response was not as large or as quick as the insurrectionary commune had expected. From City Hall, they sent a delegation to downtown at his apartment. One of the delegation was an attorney who had been the first to arouse the mob for the storming of the Bastille three years earlier. He was tall and robust, but of strange appearance, with thin, downward-turning lips under a sharply pointed nose, eye-arching eyebrows, an almost permanent frown, and shifting, darting eyes. His name was Antoine Quentin Fouquier-Tinville. Danton promised that night to make Fouquier-Tinville his aide. Fouquier-Tinville was later to prosecute almost all the victims of the guillotine during the reign of terror and to be recalled by London when in December 1917, after making, he had made another revolution, the Communist Revolution, consciously following the pattern of the French Revolution, he founded the first Soviet secret police, saying, where are we going to find our Fouquier-Tinville? Back in Paris on the night of the toxin, soon after Fouquier-Tinville departed, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, Danton decided that the leader's presence was needed at City Hall, 
It's no good, he told his wife, who obviously did not want him to go. I have to go down there. Upon arriving, he proclaimed to the National Guard and others in and around City Hall the establishment of the authority of the insurrectionary commune in Paris. The mayor of Paris, Jérôme Petion, who had thereby been displaced, at least in the eyes of Danton, was nowhere to be seen. He'd been told what was coming and decided not to resist. But the commander of the National Guard, Antoine-Jean Galliot, Marquis de Mandat, a brave and loyal officer who was at the post of danger in the royal palace, was ready, ready to fight the revolutionaries, though many, like the mayor, were not. A mile and a half down the River Seine from City Hall, the royal family of France was confined to the palace and gardens of the Tuileries, where they had been confined since the fateful day in October 1789, when they had been brought there by, from Versailles by an armed mob like, the, mob like the one now gathering, led by men carrying severed human heads on their pikes. More than a year ago, the royal family had made a dramatic attempt to escape, slipping out of the Tuileries and out of Paris on a short June night, riding for their lives all the next day until they were recognized and stopped, just short of safety in the little town of Varennes. But they had ridden for their lives not on horseback, but in an enormous lumbering carriage called a berline, which carried the children's governess instead of an armed guard, with the queen's hairdresser as outrider and messenger, and one of the scouts too near-sighted to see much. While the man who caught them, the young postmaster Drouet, rode to cut them off on a wild gallop through woods on a stony ridge in deepening dusk at the risk of his life. Now they were back in the Tuileries, and when they heard the toxin, they knew it sounded for them. His most Christian majesty, Louis XVI, king of France, was moderately tall, blonde and blue-eyed, and running to fat. A kindly, pious man of no more than average intelligence, he would have been somewhat miscast as a ruler in any age, but probably would have coped well enough in a time of stability and peace. But now France had been gripped for more than three years by a convulsion such as no nation in Christendom for centuries had seen or imagined though well, Pope Benedict XIV had seen, foreseen and predicted it years ago, which the king, knowing that he had done nothing to uh, arouse it, could neither understand nor bring under control. Though well, shut away in the Tuileries Palace, he had sensed the menace of this night, even before the toxin began to ring. For the first time in his reign, he had refused the ritual of the coucher, the ceremonial putting of the king to bed. He had thrown himself on his bed fully clothed, sleeping only for brief intervals. At other times he paced about the palace in his rumpled purple suit, his usually carefully curled and powdered hair disheveled, gripped as always by the fatal indecision that was a fundamental part of his character. Louis XVI was not a coward, but he had a fundamental aversion to shedding the blood of his own people and his personality was not one that could dominate any difficult situation. His wife, Marie Antoinette, was made of different stuff. To the memory of no other woman, and a few of either sex, has the verdict of her time and of history alike been so unjustly and vindictively destructive. 
The worst of the pamphlets written against her before and during the revolution still require special permission even to read in the National Library of France. So vile and obscene are they. Though the worst of the calumnies against her are no longer believed, the fetid odor of scandal still clings to her name, laced with the acrid tang of contempt. Didn't she say to starving people, let them eat cake? No, she didn't. The one who said that was the wife of Louis XIV, Marie Antoinette's husband's great-great-grandmother. Marie Antoinette, married to the heir to the throne of France at only 16, had been somewhat frivolous in her first few years as princess and queen. But time and motherhood had matured her. She was devoted to her 14-year-old daughter, Marie-Therese Charlotte, named for Marie Antoinette's splendid and heroic mother, for 40 years Holy Roman Empress of the Habsburg dynasty, and just as devoted to her seven-year-old son, Louis Charles, Crown Prince of France. Marie Antoinette, like her mother, was a deeply believing Catholic. She had oppressed no one. More intelligent, more sensitive, and more decisive than her husband. She had understood the revolution from its beginning much better than he. She sensed the black malignancy at its heart, drawn from wellsprings below this world, calling them the fountains of the great deep. She and her husband and her children had been prisoners of the revolution for three long years. After their escape was barely foiled at Varennes, and she was brought back to Paris through jeering, violently hostile crowds, with her life threatened almost every step of the way, her once lovely auburn hair had turned dead gray. All her vivacity and most of her beauty had gone. Calvary lay ahead, heralded by the clanging of the toxin. Members of the National Guard posted at the Tuileries were arguing vociferously whether or not they should do their duty and defend the royal family. Their shouts, recriminations, and threats penetrated the royal chambers. Only the Swiss Guards stood firm and silent. 900 farm boys from the Alpine valleys of the Catholic canton of Lucerne, the last wholly loyal body of fighting men left in Paris, iron-disciplined, unyielding, but they had only 30 rounds of ammunition per man because Mayor Petion had refused to issue them any more, and the men from Marseille had brought cannon. It was nearly 4 o'clock in the morning. The toxin was finally silent, but now drums were beating in the streets punctuated by the periodic crash of signal guns. The sky was beginning to redden in the east. It was going to be a beautiful sunrise. Princess Elizabeth, the king's gentle and holy sister, took the queen by the arm and led her to the window, a window overlooking the garden of the Tuileries Palace. Come, sister, she said, let us watch the dawn break. There were a few moments almost of peace then a wild-eyed National Guard officer rushed into the royal quarters shouting, This is your last day. The people have proved the strongest. What carnage there will be. Marie Antoinette burst into tears. Save the king. Save my children. This young wife and mother cried to the heedless, excited officers of the king's chamber. No one listened. No one answered. The Queen of France was abandoned by all. She ran into her little son's room. Alone of all the household, he had slept through the night, but he was awake now, and he asked, Mama, why should they hurt Papa? He is so good.
With a great effort, Marie Antoinette gained command of herself. She seated herself by the fireplace in the room of the king's ballot, with her back to the windows, and addressed herself to the Attorney General, Pierre-Louis Redor, uh, representative of France's second government, that of the Legislative Assembly. Redor had early, earlier informed the royal family that even as chief law enforcement officer of that government, he could do nothing about what was happening because an insurrection, unlike ordinary crime, was beyond his powers. He had urged the royal family to leave the Tuileries Palace and place themselves under the protection of the assembly, which he convened at two o'clock that morning under the presidency of the famous lawyer and orator Pierre Vagnot of the Gironde region in the south of France, the debate of all subjects at such a moment, black slavery. Now she asked Redder again, what is to be done? He was supposed to know, but he had nothing to tell her, simply repeating his earlier recommendation that the royal family go to the assembly and place itself under their protection. Monsieur, there are troops here, said Marie Antoinette. In that moment there spoke through her the splendid heritage of half a thousand years the Holy Roman Emperors, including Charles V, the emperor who saved Christendom from whom she was descended. Charles has faced down Martin Luther, but there was a menace greater than Luther in Paris this day. It is time to know who will triumph, the king and the constitution, or factionalism, the queen said. Redderer retired in some confusion. Evidently, he had not expected this kind of courage from the queen. The king, inspired by his wife, for the moment echoed He echoed it. He had no confidence in the assembly. He would fight for his crown, his life, and his family. In a few minutes, he would review his troops. It was now five o'clock in the morning. The loyal commander of the National Guard, the Marquis de Mandat, had been in the Tuileries most of the night. He was summoned from City Hall. The summons appeared to come from the regular city government, approved by the Legislative Assembly and headed by Mayor Petion. Redderer persuaded Mandat that it was his duty to obey the summons. Neither the king nor the queen intervened. Mandat leaped on his horse and rode along the right bank of the Seine River toward City Hall. On the way, he saw large numbers of men forming up and preparing to march. Arriving at City Hall, Mandat issued orders to the moment of dismounting from his horse, quote, to disperse the procession marching on the palace by attacking it in the rear, end quote. The battalion commander who received Mandat's order, perhaps still unsure of which government to obey, took it to Police Commissioner Rossignol, who brought it to Danton. Danton strode menacingly into Mandat's office with Rossignol and demanded that Mandat come before the councillors of the insurrectionary commune to explain himself. Marat faced, Mandat faced him the giant with a smashed face, who had said summer days earlier when Mayor Pétion had proposed removing Mandat as commander of the National Guard once the insurrection had begun. What do you mean, remove him? Kill him, man! The dead don't come back! George Jacques Danton was making his revolution, and the commander of the National Guard knew it. This so-called commune of yours is nothing but a bunch of sedition rebels, Mandat replied, and replied, and I have no intention of appearing before them. 
Danton reached out with a vast hand and seized Mandat by the scruff of his neck. Mandat was thrown into prison and declared deprived of his command of the National Guard, being replaced by Santerre, a brewer from the San Juan Quarter. About three hours later, Mandat was brought out of his cell and taken to City Hall, where Police Commissioner Rossignol drew his pistol and shot him dead on the spot. Mandat had given orders to fire on the people, Danton later explained. I therefore transferred the death sentence to him. So did law and order in Paris die at the hands of Jacques Danton. If any one man launched the French Revolution, it was Danton at that this moment. He later admitted it, Franklin without apology or repentance. That was to change fundamentally. Just a few minutes after the arrest and killing of Mandat, the king finished buckling on his ceremonial sword and still in his rumpled purple suit, with the cock, his cocked hat under his arm, he went down to the Tuileries Palace Gardens to review and hopefully to inspire his defenders. On the way, he passed members of the Swiss Guard who were stationed at the palace. They called out to him, down with the factions, down with the Jacobins. Country farm boys, these Swiss were, but they knew who they were fighting. But in the courtyard, out in the courtyard, where the National Guard units were drawn up, the first cries of long live the king were soon drowned out by long live the nation and down with the tyrant. Some of the guardsmen broke ranks and crowded around the king, shaking their fists in his face and calling him a fat pig. Nevertheless, he continued, saying to each company he reached, I love the National Guard. When he did not meet an obviously hostile response, he would say pathetically in a wavering voice, We must defend ourselves, don't you think? <clears throat> With reference to the attackers, he said, They're certainly coming. What do they want? I will not separate myself from good citizens. My cause is theirs. At length he desisted and returned to his family, deathly pale. It seems to have been almost exactly at this moment that Redra, who left the Tuileries to find out more about what was going on outside, encountered Danton. Danton had been drinking heavily. Redra could feel, smell the alcohol on his breath. All things planned, we're sure to win, the giant told him confidently. But the thing is, people are set on killing the king today, and I don't regard this as necessary in the circumstances. His death would complicate things enormously, and therefore I am against the whole idea of the king's execution. What I want you to do is put the fear of God into him, persuade him to leave the palace and seek asylum with the assembly. There we shall have him surrounded and can proceed to arrange his deposition at our leisure. Thus did Danton tell the chief law enforcement officer, officer of France that the king's life was in danger and that his deposition was intended. Rather hesitated. Suddenly Danton seized him by the throat. Take care, he thundered in his booming voice. In this tragedy, everyone has his allotted part to play. Anyone who thinks he can be a mere onlooker will find it costs him his head. Don't falter now or you'll regret it later. I will be watching you. Suddenly there was a roar of cannon fire. Do you hear that? Danton belled at Redderer. The ball has begun. This time we're calling the music and the people must dance to our tune. 
At the Tuileries, the king sat at the table next to the entrance of his reception room, his hands on his knees. Everyone could see that he had no idea whatsoever of what to do. The shouting outside grew louder as more revolutionaries poured into Carousel Square in front of the palace. Rederer reappeared and said, Your Majesty has not five minutes to lose. You will be safe only in the National Assembly. The opinion of the department is that you go there without delay. You don't have enough men to defend the chateau. They're no longer well disposed towards you. The artillery men have unloaded their guns. There are 12 pieces of artillery and a huge crowd is arriving. Louis XVI rose and went to a window which had a partial view of the front of the palace. I don't see a very large crowd, murmured the bewildered king. The queen told Rederer that the palace still held many men who would defend the royal family. Madame, all Paris is marching, said Rederer. Resistance is impossible. Do you wish to make yourself responsible for the massacre of the king, of your children, of yourself, of the faithful servitors who surround you? God forbid, exclaimed Marie Antoinette, struck at her most vulnerable point as a a woman. Would that I could be the only victim. Time presses, sire, Rederer warned coldly, turning his eyes on the king, would remain entirely silent while his life and his family's lives were being debated. Nor did he speak even now. The historian at this point longs for just one man to draw a sword or a pistol. Monsieur Redwer said Princess Elizabeth, Louis' sister, will you answer for the life of the king? Madame, we will answer for dying at your side. That's all we can promise. The king rose and moved over to the noblemen and officers who had now assembled in his reception room, swaying a little as he walked. Then he spoke despairingly, Gentlemen, I beg you to withdraw and abandon a useless defense. There is nothing to be done here for you or for me. Marchons, which means let's go. Escorted by a double column of Swiss and National Guardsmen, with Rederer in front and the king following, the royal party set out for the assembly across the gardens of the Tuileries Palace. Birds were singing, the sun was shining, the grass was a brilliant green. Marie Antoinette followed her husband, holding her son's hand. Right behind them was Princess Elizabeth, holding the hands of her niece, Marie Antoinette's daughter, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte, and of the queen's dearest friend, the Princess de Lamballe. Tears streamed from the queen's eyes. For a moment she felt that she could not continue walking and leaned for support on the arm of La Rochefoucauld, the guard. He could feel her body trembling. Yet still she struggled against despair, calling out to her ladies and waiting, We shall see you again. But the Princess de Lamballe whispered, We shall never return. And they never did return. The smashing blade of the guillotine loomed before them. Somewhere in the distance, at a location never revealed, from which he could see every detail of the scene, a 23-year-old lieutenant of artillery from the island of Corsica, a short man with lank brown hair and masterful gray eyes, who was to become one of the greatest generals of history shook his head grimly as he watched the king and his family depart. Ah, if I had been in command, said Napoleone Bonaparte. 
several years later, Napoleon, now in command, was to break the power of the revolutionary mob with what he called a whiff of grape shot. But no one had the courage and the common sense to try that now. For the rest of that horrible day, the royal family was confined in the stenographer's box of the assembly, a little closet six feet wide and 12 feet high, stifling in the August heat. The king, in the words of a German observer, seemed stunned and helpless. But the Swiss guard fought on. They stood on the palace stairs in battle array. The attackers reached for them with the hooks on the end of their halberds, pulling some of them down and butchering them. Then their disciplined volleys swept the mob. At long last, the royal family had real defenders. The mob demanded that the Swiss surrender. We are Swiss, and the Swiss only lay down their arms with their lives. A sergeant named Blazer dauntlessly replied. The Swiss handled their artillery with vigor, Lieutenant Bonaparte noted provenly from his vantage point. But the mob rallied as they moved out of cannon shot, and the Swiss guard, who had been issued only 30 rounds of ammunition apiece, began to run out of it. As the roar of battle rose, it began to drown out the sonorous deliberations of the assembly, meeting just 500 yards away from the Tuileries Palace. A few stray bullets came through the windows of the building where the assembly met. Several of its members urged the king, still sitting in the stenographer's box, to order the Swiss guard to cease firing. Incredibly, he agreed at once. The order was given to Captain Durler of the Swiss guard. Captain Durler refused to accept it. He'd seen five of his men who had been captured and disarmed at the foot of the Grand Scarecase cut to pieces before his eyes. He knew this mob would give no quarter. Surrender meant death. He ran to the assembly building and pleaded with the king to allow his men to continue defending themselves and themselves. When the king confirmed his order, Captain Durler demanded it in writing. Louis XVI made his last decision as King of France. It was like so many of his other decisions, or a lack of them, which had brought ruin to himself, to his family, to his people, and their country, while meaning only the best. His written order to the Swiss Guard has survived the holy cost of the French Revolution. Quote, the king orders the Swiss to lay down their arms immediately and to withdraw to their barracks, signed Louis. End quote. So the drums of the Swiss guard of his most Christian majesty, Louis XVI of France, beat the retreat before the revolution. Back through the gardens of the Tuileries they marched. The treacherous national guard assembled there, opened fire on their unresisting ranks as they passed. One column went to their barracks, another to the assembly. In both places they stacked arms. Then disarmed and defenseless, they were set upon. Wherever they went, wherever they fled, wherever they hid, they were seized, dragged out in triumph, and slaughtered like pigs. Many of them were horribly mutilated. Before it was over, an observer said that he did not believe there was a single street in Paris that had not seen at least one Swiss head on the end of a pike. By the end of that day, children were rolling some of the heads along the streets. Women like vultures were staring tearing strips of flesh off the naked corpses of the king's defenders. It was truly a satanic moment. 
More than 600 of the Swiss Guard died in that massacre, one of the most repulsive which history has recorded. Far more were killed at Auschwitz and places like that. But that killing was not done in the streets of the capital city of a Christian nation, with women and children cheering on the killers and mutilators of men who had only done their duty in defense of their legitimate sovereign and who were no longer even attempting to resist. The survivors were thrown into prison, almost every one of them to die in the same fashion within a month. The Swiss Guard of King Louis XVI is memorialized in their native city of Lucerne. There stands today in that beautiful city a stone lion dying from the thrust of a lance. Faithful unto death, it holds in its paws a shield emblazoned with a fleur-de-lis, the ancient symbol of the kings of France. Below it are engraved the names of the fallen. Still, there have been historians who have found their fate palatable and even admirable. Many French, even many Americans, glorified this revolution. I defy any Christian to read or hear an accurate account of the events of August 10, 1792, and not feel the presence and active malevolence of the father of evil and of lies. And the author of it all, as we have seen, was Danto. But God and a 15-year-old girl named Louise Shelley were to bring Danton back to Christ in their most remarkable conversion story in all of history. This story begins with Danton's beloved wife, Gabrielle, the mother of his three children, and a devout Catholic who had not wanted him to go into Paris on the night of the toxin. Later, when Danton was away in Belgium overseeing its conquest by the revolution, Gabrielle died in childbirth. Told of her death, Danton returned immediately to Paris, sobbing all the way. She had always been a good Catholic, whatever her husband was. Surely in her last moments she prayed for his soul, for she loved him as he loved her, and God is love. Christ heard her as he always hears prayers. In the ensuing weeks, the bereaved Danton was drawn to the much younger girl, only 15 years old, who had been Gabriel's best friend, Louise Jaly. Despite her youth, she had conversed with the overpowering Danton almost as an equal. The scene captivates the imagination. The gigantic, frighteningly ugly, barrel-chested revolution maker of 33, gladiator, the gladiator of audacity, the terror of kings, an animated conversation with a 15-year-old girl who refuses to be overwhelmed by the mighty torrent of his words and his will and gives back as good as she gets. Did she know what he had done? She must have. She had been his dead, his dead wife's best friend. Did she reject him because of what he had done? No. Her friend that loved him and his children for whom she cared greatly needed her. Did she think of Christ's words recorded in the Gospel of Luke that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents um, than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We shall never know in this world, for Louise Lee, compounding the ancient stereotype of woman as gossip, kept silence all through the many years of life that remained to her. She did not die until 1856 at the age of 78. In all that time, she never spoke of Danton through whom she changed history. 
She left no memoirs, unlike most of the other participants in the Great Revolution. Of her appearance, we are told that, quote, she had quick, bright eyes, a heart-shaped face, and fine chestnut hair. In June 1793, the year of the terror, when heads were falling under the guillotine every day, Georges-Jacques Danton asked Louise Jolie to marry him. It was a grace-filled moment like few the world has ever seen. But she said yes on two firm conditions. Danton must first go to confession, and the priest who was to witness their marriage must be one who had not sworn allegiance to the schismatic church the revolution had established. And Danton agreed to both conditions. Louise Jolie had drawn up two mighty sacraments, penance and matrimony, in the battle for Danton's lost soul. Well might the best historian of the reign of terror in the French Revolution say, quote, of all the startling spectacles that the chronicle of the revolution has bequeathed to posterity, Danton's confession is assuredly one of the most unexpected, end quote. And the Catholic historian who understands the power of the sacrament of repentance must add one of the most significant. Where might a priest still in communion with Rome be found in Paris in 1793, the year of the terror? Louise's parents knew. They were in contact with a Sulpician priest named Carabinon, who had been in the laboratory when the September massacres of priests began. He climbed up the laboratory wall, found a loose board in the ceiling, and squeezed under the roof, where he lay silent for a full 24 hours. Then he climbed down, made his escape, and lived to write his memoirs, from which we know of Danton's confession. He describes Danton in the confessional, but of course gives no hint of what he said there. Since his escape, Father Caravanan had lived in Paris as an outlaw, moving repeatedly to avoid discovery but continuing to serve as a priest whomever of the bereft faithful like the Jaile family needed him. So he was ready to be God's agent in bringing Danton to repentance and salvation. For Christ died for Georges-Jacques Danton as well as for you and me. Did Danton mean what he said in Father Caravanan's confessional? Some cynical historians have thought he was only going through the motions of complying with Louise's conditions for their marriage. On June 7th, about a week before his confession, Danton appeared as so he had so often at a meeting of the Paris Jacobin Club, Center of Revolutionary Planning and Activity. He did not attend another meeting of that club until December. The executive arm of the French Revolution was the Committee of Public Safety. In July, Danton, who had been his first member, was removed from that committee. He made no protest, and before that month was over, he was offered reinstatement on the committee, and he said to the murderous convention, I swear by the liberty of my country that I will never accept a place on that committee. The new Danton knew that he had let hell into his beloved homeland, and like any Catholic penitent, he had to try to make amends. If he were to state this purpose, he would at once have been brought to the guillotine, his likely fate in any case. He must have known that he would pay with his life for his sins. Like Frankenstein against his monster, he must grapple to the death with the hideous thing he had created. But Danton was a man of magnificent courage, 
who had cried out for the world audacity always in the early days of the revolution. He would not shrink from the fate he could foresee, and he would not flee, but would go down fighting. Probably at the end of the preceding November, Danton was walking with two companions along the River Seine, returning from the convention. The rays of a brilliant setting sun painted the waters red. One of his companions, Dr. Suburbiel, was a member of the Revolutionary Tribunal, which Danton had established, mentioned that this day 15 persons had been sent to the guillotine by the tribunal and 27 more were scheduled for the next day. For a moment, the revolutionary doctor felt a touch of humanity. Danton gazed down to the lovely curving river of Paris. Look at the same, Danton said, it's flowing blood. The doctor expressed his uneasiness and fear and murmured, ah, if only I were Danton. Giant turned to the other, to his, their other companion, the journalist and agitator Camille Desmoulins, whose wife had been with him on the night of the toxin. But this was now a very different Danton. Suddenly he came to a momentous decision and said, Danton is returning to the fray. He slept too long. There has been too much blood spilled. Camille, take up your pen again. Appeal to them to be more merciful. I'll back you up. He thrust out a mighty hand. You see my hand, you know its strength. Danton's expiation had begun. On the first day of December, Danton took the next step in his attack on the terror. Most significantly, it was in defense of the Catholic rebels of the Vendée, who had risen heroically against the revolution and were now being annihilated with rampant cruelty. The rising in the Vendée had been strong and widespread enough to pose a serious threat to the whole revolutionary regime. If Danton intended to preserve his position as leader of the French Revolution, surely he would have chosen, at least initially, less provocative objects for the mercy he now advocated. But his choice was made, and in the few months of life that remained to him, he never wavered from it. When he was arrested at the end of March, was sent to prison by the Revolutionary Tribunal, he told his fellow prisoners in the most explicit avowal of his repentance, a year ago I established the Revolutionary Tribunal. I ask pardon of God and man. Then, more significantly still, it's better to be a poor fisherman than a ruler of man. Once there had been a poor fisherman in a far land across the sea, a fisherman who found the Messiah, recognized him as God, and became the vicar of Christ. The revolution's killers brought Danton to the guillotine on April 5th, after he'd been convicted by a jury picked and packed by the public prosecutor, Fouquier Tinville, which at first deadlocked and would only bring in the desired verdict of guilty after they were threatened with the guillotine themselves. About halfway in the long, slow course of the procession to death, Danton gazed, suddenly gazed fixedly at a man wearing a liberty cap who was keeping pace with the car carrying the condemned man. Dressed as he was, he looked like any other revolutionary, but finally Danton recognized him. He was Father Carabinon. Louis, Louise had asked him to be there, but we may be sure that he would come even without her entreaty. He had been reciting the prayers of the dying. 
When downtown remained his eyes and recognized him, he bowed his head. From the roadside, Father Kiravanan gave downtown absolution. There were 15 men to be killed on that pale, filmy afternoon of the earliest spring in Paris. Danton was the last. One by one, he watched the heads fall, and a red stain spread on the planks of the revolution's death. Like a rock, he stood outlined against the monstrous bulk in the fading sun. An eyewitness tells us, quote, In the dying light of day, the great leader seemed to be rising out of his tomb as much as preparing to descend into it. Never was anything more bold than that athlete's countenance. Never anything more formidable than the look of that profile, which seemed to divide the knife, end quote. When at last it was his turn, for just a moment his control faltered, as a vision of Louise, his good angel, came before his eyes. Oh, my beloved, he said, shall I never see you again? Then, come, come, Anton, there must be no weakness. He turned to the execution, holding up his head with his pig-trampled face in a last gesture of defiance. You must show my head to the people, he said. It's worth it. The great knife fell. Jean-Jacques Danton, architect and leader of the French Revolution, was slain by its hand at the age of 34. Danton was dead. The revolution and the terror went on. We have good reason to believe that repentance and expiation had saved his soul. For Jesus Christ will save repentant souls up to the very age of death. The cross vanquishes the guillotine. In Christ's own words, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he is found, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. On April 5, 1794, there was great rejoicing in heaven, for Jean-Jacques Danton, who had been lost, was found. So pray for your enemies, even the worst of them. Thanks for listening and find out more about Christendom College at www.christendom.edu.